Welcome to the TJF podcast. There hasn't been much to laugh about in UK policing for the last 10 years or so, but this is the only podcast that will tell you really honestly what it's been like to be in the British police for the last 30 years. I'll talk about the funny bits, the sad bits and the very disturbing bits. How has it changed? When and why did those changes happen? What was it like to live through this incredibly tumultuous period in the history of British policing? And how did UK policing end up in a bit of a mess? If you're genuinely curious about what police officers actually do, this is definitely the podcast for you. Listener caution is advised because there may be a bit of swearing from time to time and some of the subjects that I'll talk about will be pretty unpleasant. So, here we go. Hello everybody, Ian here again. Really nice to be back with you for episode two. Uh, really pleased to see the positive comments I'm getting and the reviews, uh, lots of nice messages and emails. Lots of kind of mixed feedback as well uh, from, from people who know me better, you know, people who are friends of mine, people who have worked with me over the years. I had a really interesting conversation with a very good friend of mine, Tom. I won't identify him because it's unfair to do that, but uh, his first name's Tom and I worked with him for many years in London uh, when I was in Special Branch and uh, I'll probably get him on at some point to talk uh, about you know our time working together, um, caveated by no sensitive disclosures about the jobs we were on, but uh, it'd be interesting to talk about the sort of culture of working in the organisation at that time and what it was like to be in Special Branch for all those years. Uh, so Tom gave me some really interesting uh, feedback. Uh, he's a pretty robust character. Um, he absolutely tortures me and has done for years. He and I were completely inseparable for quite a long time. We were both on a surveillance team together. Uh, we both worked together on on uh, operations teams before that. So um, so he knows me really well. We've spent a lot of time together um, uh, and done a lot of stuff outside work as well. So he said something interesting. He said, Ian, I think you're really holding back, mate. And I said, well, what do you mean? He said, I think you've got a lot more to say. And I think, um, you know, everyone who's been in the police for any length of time is just feeling so angry and fed up and frustrated about the way that things have have been done to the police by, you know, politicians. And and, and I'm just, I think you just sound you know, far too measured about the whole thing. I'd really like to hear you getting really angry. And I said, well, I'm just not sure what that would achieve, Tom. And I don't think people want to tune in and listen to some angry bloke ranting um, about all the unfairness that's been directed towards British policing for a long time. It kind of turns people off. And I suppose what I really want to do is I want to take people on a journey. Um, I know that sounds a bit naff, but I want to be able to give them the facts. um, And then it's probably up to them to make their own minds up about um, what's what the truth of all of this is. So, I mean, don't get me wrong, uh, you know, and I said this in in the introduction to the podcast, uh, that I feel and still feel, and I think a lot of people do because they tell me, and I, every time I speak to them, they they talk about this, they, they all feel so much anger about what's been done to the British police service. And you only have to see the uh, dreadful uh, commentary directed towards policing in the last... Uh, two or three weeks with, you know, Clapham and uh, Bristol disorder and and all of this stuff to to see that it's kind of, it just feels as if you just can't do right for doing wrong. You know, I know uh, because I've worked with them and because they're my friends and because I talk to them and because I'm part of various social media sites, I I know the depth of anger that's out there and frustration. I think that's the word really. It's unbelievable levels of frustration uh, that just no one seems to be listening uh, to what police officers actually um, have to say. Um, but yeah, I, I'm not going to suddenly start ranting, um, but believe me, uh, there's a lot to be said about all of this kind of stuff. And um, But I think it's for you to to make your mind up, not, not for me to kind of preach at you. So I promised that each episode will start with a bit of a review of what's been going on the last week uh, relevant to policing. So there's a few things just to sort of whet your appetite about what I'm going to talk about. I'm going to talk about um, line of duty again. Oh, God. Um, because 
you know, you all love it so much. Uh, and I just want to, um, in, a, in a sort of a therapeutic kind of way, um, this is therapy for me, not you, uh, to talk about uh, line of duty and some of the um, feedback from police officers. Uh, also talk about an absolutely fantastic documentary series on BBC Two, which I would so urge you to tune in and listen to. Listen to? Oh, God, such an idiot. Yeah, you need to watch it, um, albeit you might want to listen to it as well. Um, it's all about uh, Greater Manchester Police Serious and Organised Crime Team investigating some really, really horrible, horrible individuals. Um, so I'll talk about that uh, later. And uh, I also want to talk about the uh, very welcome vindication of the Metropolitan Police's tactics at the Clapham Vigil uh, a couple of weeks ago. Um, so yeah, so let's just talk about line of duty first of all. So what I said on my website was that the degree to which the British public loves line of duty is only surpassed by the degree to which British police officers hate it. I know that's probably going to sound quite shocking to you, but I think it's fair to say that most British police officers, past and present, see Line of Duty as probably the worst TV drama about policing ever. And the fact that it was made, I believe, by the same person who did Bodyguard, which is probably the second worst one about policing ever, that's really uh, quite quite an achievement to have done that. So uh, so well done, whoever whoever did it. Yeah. So uh, a number of reasons why we hate it so much. Uh, first of all, unbelievably inaccurate in so many ways. Just too many ways to mention. It's just embarrassingly inaccurate. Um, the plots are just ridiculous, uh, nonsensical, and and just stretch uh, credibility to absolute breaking point. The other one that always makes me kind of laugh is the way the characters speak to each other. They all kind of patronise each other in a way that sort of suggests that the person they're talking to had just sort of joined the police earlier that day and there was absolutely nothing about policing. And I know that that's a, um, you know, a dramatic um, artifice to pass information, and I use that word information very, very loosely because it's usually just rubbish, uh, to the uninformed uh, viewers watching it. But it's just really cringy when they do it. Um Death by three-letter acronym. So all the acronyms that they come out with, um, a lot of them just aren't used uh, very much at all in policing. And if they are, they certainly aren't used in the way that they use them. So, yeah, but the thing that I suppose um, pisses police officers past and present off the most about Line of Duty is that it creates an illusion in the minds of the viewers that British policing is just riddled with corruption. And that is just so not the case. And I know it's only drama. I know it's only drama. But honestly, folks, it is corruption, police corruption, genuine police corruption. And I'm not talking about someone making an inappropriate comment on WhatsApp or, or, or going out and, you know, kind of having an inappropriate relationship with someone who they've met on duty or whatever. That's, that's, that's um, misconduct, OK? I'm talking about corruption, proper corruption okay is so unbelievably rare in the police and we've got extremely good anti-corruption units uh, who are very good at what they do and they identify that type of behavior very quickly and and deal with it and those people either get uh, arrested they go to prison um, and and the old saying is that uh, no one hits a bent copper more than a good copper so um, the thing that kind of worries me, and maybe I'm worrying about this just too much and I just need to chill out, but the thing that worries me is that so many people watch Line of Duty that inevitably they're going to come away thinking, well, you know, OK, so it's probably a bit exaggerated, um, but it's got to be based on some element of realism. But honestly, folks, it's really not. It's really not. So, so please just kind of... Um, you know, take it with not a pinch of salt. Oh my God, just like a bloody dumper truck full of salt. So I suppose the the analogy for me would be if there was a drama about doctors that suggested that they were all a bunch of paedophiles and sex offenders and just couldn't wait to get their grubby hands all over female patients. Um, that that's That's how it feels to police officers watching Line of Duty. It's just like, 
you know, we watch it and we go, oh God, seriously? But then we saw something on social media that really literally almost had me falling off my chair in horror and disbelief was that the Independent Office for Police Conduct, that's the IOPC, um, were using images of line of duty and line of duty hashtags on their website and their Twitter feed to advertise what they do um, and seek applicants to vacancies to work in the independent, now the clue should have been in the word independent, Office for Police Conduct. So, so just to explain what they do, they investigate allegations, generally the more serious allegations made against police officers uh, in as independent uh, way as possible, because obviously in, in days gone by, police forces would have investigated complaints against police officers and that was deemed to be unacceptable. So they created this sort of level of independence to do that. But for me, and for pretty much every police officer I've spoken to in the last few days, for the IOPC to be using a highly distorted fictional representation of endemic police corruption uh, to promote their organisation is just like, are you on drugs? Or you, who thought that was a good idea? So, so yeah, um, life imitating art there, uh, I think. So moving on. I'll just talk a little bit about the BBC Two as a detectives fighting serious organised crime uh, series. So I watched the first episode with uh, my wife the other evening and I just find it absolutely fantastic. And it was like, what a breath of fresh air that we were able to show the sort of people that we routinely have to deal with in the police. And this is what people who turn out in their numbers uh, tens of thousands of numbers with banners and placards saying all cops are bastards, uh, screaming at them, calling them rapists and murderers and all of this kind of stuff. That's why police officers get so unbelievably frustrated by that, because they have no clue, no clue whatsoever about the sort of people that we have to deal with day in and day out. And this documentary shows the scumbags, and that's the only word I can use to describe them, says the hospice chaplain. I'm not being very good hospice chaplain at the moment, am I? And they are in every town and city across our nation, dealing drugs, uh, intimidating, decent, law-abiding people, behaving, strutting about with their expensive cars and carrying guns and just generally being a complete cancer on society. And it was such an unbelievable joy to watch my sort of my ex-colleagues. I wasn't in Manchester, I was in Birmingham and London. Such a joy to watch them dealing with these people and the level of professionalism, the level of commitment that they were uh, displaying was, was just an absolute pleasure to see. And so I really urge you to watch it. There's some people on that who are just absolutely horrible. And I've dealt with those people for years and years and years. They're very, very scary. You, you, when you're dealing with, so let's, let's talk about that for a moment. What's it like dealing with these people who are like a loaded weapon? These are people who are extremely violent. And if they get half a chance to hurt you, if you get in their way, either as a police officer or as a member of the public, you are going to get very, very badly hurt. And you only have to see the demeanour of these people when they were in the custody block in, in Manchester, the, the level of intimidation and pent-up aggression that they were exhibiting. And this is within a police station. So can you imagine what they're like when they're actually out in the street? Um, yeah, so so this is what I'd say to anyone who, who gives the, the old bill a hard time. I'd say, put on, put on a uniform and then go out into the street and have to deal with people like that, okay? Just think about that, what that's like. It's bloody, bloody horrible. Um, but you know what, I'm not complaining about it. I did it for many years with many colleagues and it was, it was, and I was, you know, loved, loved every minute of it. But I tell you what, I've dealt with people like that out in the street many, many times. And, and it's, it's very, very scary. So yeah, so take, take a look at that and, uh, and yeah, maybe come back to that as the, as the, as the series develops. So let's just have a, a chat now about 
the whole Clapham thing, the report that came out yesterday from the Inspectorate of Constabulary vindicating the tactics used by the Metropolitan Police, trying to clear a unlawful assembly that had turned from a supposedly peaceful vigil. Well, it was a, a peaceful vigil, um, albeit it was against the coronavirus uh, lockdown legislation. But the Met Police were in a just an impossible position trying to enforce this legislation that many politicians themselves thought it was okay to break. And the whole thing turned into a complete car crash for the Met. And that was largely down to a very selective uh, reporting of the events the following day by the media that used some highly selective, very short sections of footage taken by agitators and uh, the media. Um, they didn't show the many hours that the police had been there um, in a very low-key way, uh, you know, being very supportive as much as they could and facilitating that vigil. They they focused on uh, the, the flashpoint where some very noisy activists had decided to try and whip everyone up uh, into a, an anti-police thing in much the same way that they did with Black Lives Matters and uh, various things like this. And we see it, obviously, in, in Bristol as well. So it's the it's standard operating um, procedures of the hard left, I suppose. So if you recall, there was obviously a massive outcry after that. Um, everyone, the mayor of London, Sadiq Khan, was uh, highly critical of, of the police. Pretty much every politician across every party was highly critical and, uh, you know, I, I was reading a lot of stuff on police social media sites written by people who'd actually been there, who'd actually been in that situation the day before. And they were all saying it was just a complete nightmare. Um, and the way that it was being represented by the media the following day was just just completely inaccurate. So the Home Secretary, uh, Priti Patel, commissioned a review of the whole thing uh, and I think pretty much every police officer in the country's hearts absolutely sank when they saw that she had asked Tom Windsor, the chief inspector of constabulary, to do that. So the reason I say everyone's heart sank when they saw that was that Tom Windsor is a very divisive character in British policing. Um, he was brought in by Theresa May to do a review of terms and conditions of employment in the police service. Uh, some years ago, probably getting back for, uh, I don't know, probably eight or nine years ago. And uh, the terms and conditions of employment in the police service, as a result of his review, have been uh, made a lot less attractive for people. Pensions were changed uh, and not for the better. So when they made him the chief inspector of constabulary, I mean, the analogy uh, I made at the time was that it was a bit like putting uh, Agatha Trunchbull from the Matilda film uh, to, to become the, the head of Ofsted. That's how it felt uh, to police officers. It was just like, oh, my God, could it possibly get any worse now? So, so yeah, he's not a popular character in policing. Um, to be fair to him, I think, um, you know, since he's been in that role, I think he's done a, an OK job. So... So, yeah, I think uh, you've got to probably take as you find. But certainly when he was appointed to that role, it was uh, everybody sat there kind of, you know, with their head in their hands. So, yeah, so to see him being uh, given the job of doing the review of the Clapham thing was uh, was kind of a bit worrying. But uh, I think the fact that he's come out, uh, it's not just him, obviously. He would have had a whole team of, of people doing this review that would have uh, interviewed every single person who was involved in that situation at every rank. Uh, they would have reviewed many hundreds of hours of CCTV and body-worn video, and they would have spoken to the people who were, uh, you know, the opposition, so to speak. Um, and it, they would have come to a balanced view. So the fact that they've vindicated the, the, the police is very, very welcome. Um, what's been glaringly absent for me, I suppose, is the uh, silence coming from most of the politicians who were calling for Cressida Dick to be... Uh, to resign uh, after that. Um, no apologies there. 
And, and I suppose this is what I'd say about policing generally. Um, the media are very quick to uh, to put some headline grabbing um, stuff out on sort of 24 hour rolling news channels. And that has a massive impact on public confidence in terms of, uh, you know, the perception of the police. It also has a massive negative impact on the morale of the police officers who, who see that stuff. Um, so by the time the full facts come out, it's the kind of the damage is done. Um, and those headlines will have been going around the world. Um, uh, and the, the, the image of British policing will have been damaged. And and that girl who, who was uh, clearly an activist, she claims that, thank goodness, Patsy Stevenson, wasn't she? She claims that she was just sort of came along to show her support, blah, blah, blah. It's just nonsense. Um, that was all stage managed, clearly stage managed, and an and extremely disingenuous account that she gave after the uh, event. So, so there was a really good... Um, report on Sky News uh, the day after, or was it the day after? Maybe within the next sort of 24, 48 hours after Clapham. And, uh, and basically a reporter and a photographer did a, a timeline of, of everything that happened, uh, sort of, uh, you know, kind of minute by minute, really. And um, so so Patsy Stevenson, when she's been interviewed uh, in, the, in the press and what she's been putting out on social media, um, you know, creates this impression that she was sort of just there and got got kind of picked on for no reason and uh, and sort of manhandled uh, and arrested and blah blah blah. Um, so if if you look at uh, if you kind of um, Google uh, Sky News, uh, Sarah Everard Vigil, what sparked the ugly scenes? Uh, you'll be able to read it for yourself. So on that report. Uh, at 7.08pm, the reporter says, and I'll quote from the article, Patsy Stevenson, who is on the bandstand, addresses the crowd and tells the police to go home. Using a loud speaker, she says, are we going to leave and go home? A shout of no is heard from people in the crowd. Are you sure? Miss Stevenson adds. Yes, the crowd responds. Miss Stevenson then says, then the police should go home. I'm done with being bullied by police. And then, you know, the rest is history. So, so yeah, folks, um, this is the sort of bullshit, and it is utter bullshit that we have to put up with and listen to the next day. And and these people are, are activists, so that, that means they don't have to tell the truth. They can say whatever they like because they know they, they're very media savvy they know that they can say something it'll be widely reported and then kind of everybody loses interest and goes on but the damage to the organization is done okay and police officers don't have the right of reply so even though um the met police have been vindicated in terms of the response to clapham did i in my heart of hearts think that that was going to be it now that uh, that the media were going to back off and sort of just let the met get on with uh, doing the very difficult and very often dangerous job that they do. No, of course not, um, because uh, within 48 hours, the lead story on the BBC website this morning was um, Met Officer investigated over rape allegations. So this is the lead story on the BBC News website. So I'm thinking immediately when I see that, I think, oh God, what now? And then when you actually read the story, it actually goes back to 2013. And I'm, I'm not privy to any of the information around that particular story uh, or the allegation. I mean, the, the article itself goes into quite a lot of detail, um, but that's not really the point as far as I'm concerned. It's more a case of this is a single investigation into a single officer uh, that goes back to 2013 and um, in a force of 32,000 police officers. So... Clearly, the BBC and other media outlets have got their claws into the Met and they just will not let this go. Um, so, yeah, there you go. Not sure what that's all about, but um, poor old Cressida must be sitting just thinking, please, please, could you just make this stop now? Um, she doesn't deserve it. The Metropolitan Police don't deserve it. Um all it does is to further demoralise police officers, uh, which makes them ever so 
um, reluctant to get involved in anything involving confrontation uh, because they just know that they're not going to get any support from anyone. And and again, if you go back to my comments about the uh, BBC Two documentary on serious and organised crime, um, you know, these are people who need your support. These are people who need to feel that the public and the media have got their backs. And at the moment, that could not be further from the truth. So maybe if I was to write down a list of all of the things that I'm really angry about that was done to British policing in the last 10 years, uh, and this is based on not just my thoughts, but on the thoughts of lots and lots and lots of people who I've worked with and who I speak to regularly. Uh, and maybe I'll do that list at some point because that might be quite cathartic as well. And, and maybe I'll talk about that. But without any shadow of a doubt, number one on that list, the, the thing that really, really uh, drives everyone crazy with a sense, a strong sense of injustice. Um, and just on that point, that's a good point, actually. What motivates most police officers is a very, very strong, innate sense of natural justice. And that is what most of us join the police in order to, to do, to, to put right things that, that are wrong, that, that um, you know, take on the, the bullies, the, the people who, who um, you know, have got complete contempt for reasonable standards of behaviour, etc., etc. So that very strong sense of natural justice is what drives us. So, so yeah, number one on that list would be the fact that all of these changes that were made to British policing in the last 10 years were so unbelievably reckless. And that's the only word I can use to describe it. It was unbelievably reckless. And without any shadow of a doubt, it caused the deaths of many, many people unnecessarily all over the UK. And I'm particularly thinking about the deaths of young um, and very often uh, young black men in uh, towns and cities up and down the country uh, because of uh, the fact that we weren't able to police some of those areas in a way that we were able to prevent a lot of the gun and knife crime. We're talking dozens and dozens of, of young men who've died. And I, you know, I'm not so stupid as to think that that was the only reason that those people died. Clearly, it's a much, much more complex picture than that. And you could probably write multiple PhD theses on the causes of those deaths. But without any shadow of a doubt, and this is a completely common sense assessment that uh, I think if you're in denial about what I'm saying here, is you really need to think about, about you know, why you might think that. This is not an ideological point I'm making. This is a common sense point that if you withdraw 20,000 police officers nationally and 23,000 um, police uh, support staff and you uh, slash their budgets by 30%, and simultaneously, you massively undermine one of the most basic, basic police tactics, i.e. stop and search. Then, surprise, surprise, what happens? Lots of people start dying. And uh, the, the, the reason I think we get so frustrated about that is that when a police officer does something that causes a problem or someone dies or there's a miscarriage of justice or there's you know something like that there is years and years and years of inquiries legal actions um we get dragged through all sorts of um you know through the mire our reputation is dragged through the, the, the you know the, the mire and 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 very usually Police officers end up, um, you know, being disciplined and losing their jobs, uh, very often even going to prison, all of this kind of stuff. And yet what is so unfair is that this reckless behaviour by Theresa May and David Cameron resulted in all of these deaths, I believe. And it wasn't just the uh, gun and knife crime. 
epidemic that I believe was a direct result of, of that reckless behaviour. It's county lines as well. So county lines, for those who might be listening who don't know what that is, basically what that is, it is um, a concerted effort by serious and organised crime uh, drug gangs to expand their markets out of the major cities like London, Birmingham, Manchester uh, into uh, largely rural um, uh, towns and villages across the UK and frequently bringing a level of violence, uh, murders and all sorts of nastiness into parts of the country that previously wouldn't, would have, um, you know, would not have experienced that. So as if the expansion of the drug markets and the violence that that entails isn't bad enough, it also involved the exploitation of some of our most vulnerable children uh, from very uh, chaotic and um, troubled backgrounds into being effectively recruited and bullied into um, carrying those drugs around the country using, uh, you know, the rail network, the, the bus network or whatever. They get sent up to, uh, basically, they'll take over a, a house or a flat somewhere in some sleepy rural area. Um, frequently, they will do a thing called cuckooing, which basically means they'll identify someone who is very vulnerable. They might have learning difficulties. They might um, have some sort of, um, you know, serious vulnerability. So they will basically set up a drug den in that person's home from where they will operate. It's the most disgusting, horrible, um, you know, criminal enterprise that just ticks so many boxes of violence, murder, um, you know, spreading the misery of drug addiction, uh, taking advantage of uh, very vulnerable young people. And again, all of that, in my opinion, all of it can be laid firmly at the door of austerity and taking away, you know, best part of 45,000 people from the police workforce. And what accountability will they have for all of that. Sorry, I'm getting a bit emotional talking about this, you can probably tell, but it really is so unfair. And they need to stand there and, and actually be asked some very straight questions. And I think there's a study uh, that needs to be done to say, you know, what was the impact of this on, on people's lives? Um, yeah, anyway, there you go. I've said enough on that. Anyway, um, having started the podcast saying I wasn't going to get all kind of ranty, I've sounded a bit ranty, haven't I? Um, did I sound a bit of brummy there? A bit of, um, I did work there for quite a long time. But yeah, so I'll just uh, go off and um, you know lie down for a bit, put a, uh, a damp flannel over my forehead and, and just kind of calm myself down. I'll be back in a minute. Now, Ian, you must go and have a little lie down. You are feeling relaxed. Feel your shoulders relax and your breathing starting to slow down. You are no longer a police officer who needs to pick up all the pieces of a society broken by reckless politicians. There you go now. Are you feeling better? So the big news in the Donnelly household yesterday was that uh, yesterday I got my first offer from a publisher to publish the book. So I'm really excited about that and re I'm really grateful that clearly there's someone out there who, who, uh, who knows what they're doing and uh, doesn't think I'm talking complete gibberish and, uh, and feels that I've got something to say that people are prepared to listen to and to read about. So really, really exciting. So anyone who's written a book will understand exactly what I mean when I say this, that writing a book is such a labour of love, particularly if it's about something very close to you, very personal. 
um, and uh, you know you're filled with all sorts of self-doubt and, and it's one of those things in life I think that we do that we've got if you've never done it before you have that sort of gremlin on your shoulder saying to you uh, you don't know what you're doing this is a waste of time nobody's going to be interested who do you think you are all of those really negative all that sort of negative self-talk that you have to sort of try and manage it's uh, it's really awful and you know you, you've got to just keep plodding on I suppose I suppose I'd say to anyone if you've got something to say and you think people are interested in it um, then just just get on and do it you know um, and don't don't sort of talk yourself out of it um, don't beat yourself up if you have periods where uh, days or weeks when you're just not writing anything um, just accept that you're gonna um, you know come back to it and and you know certainly with this book there was periods of time when I wrote absolutely frantically for days and days and days and uh, and everybody particularly Kay would get a bit annoyed with me and say oh god he's still what are you writing now and all this kind of stuff but the thing is if you've got something in your head and you need to get it out just get it out and it doesn't matter it doesn't be perfect so my first draft was uh, version 10 so I, I kind of I didn't didn't write every single word uh, over and over again 10 times but I certainly um, you know rewrote significant chunks of it um, in every chapter at least 10 times until I was reasonably happy with it so so yeah um really really exciting really looking forward to seeing what happens um the podcast is getting lots of great um views uh, views oh god Ian, mate come on sort yourself out uh, it's getting lots of people listening to it and, and and writing nice stuff so so yeah really really good and we'll we'll just uh, keep you informed as to how that develops so just uh, on that one um if you've gone back to the website at all uh, you'll notice that I've taken pretty much all of the book off it. Uh, that was sort of a request from the publishers for perfectly understandable reasons. Um, so I have kept a couple of chapters there, uh, as well as the blogs that I've been writing. So you can get a flavour for it if you've if you've this is the first time you've sort of known anything about the book, or whatever. Uh, you can read a couple of chapters. You get a bit of an idea of what it's all about. Uh, and by listening to this podcast, you'll you'll get a flavour. So obviously, because I've had to do that, I'm probably going to have to adopt a slightly different approach with the podcast in that um, I'm going to probably refer to uh, the different chapters and uh, talk around some of those issues. But clearly, I'm not going to be reading big chunks of it uh, for sort of commercial reasons as, as much as anything else. Just a little bit then about the book. Uh, last podcast, I talked... Uh, a little bit about how the police service works in the UK, some of the structures um, which are horribly complicated and um, inefficient, I think is fair to say. And I also talked a little bit about the differences between the telepolice and the real police uh, in a sort of um, self-counselling kind of therapeutic kind of way for me. Uh, so, uh, so this week I'm just going to talk a little bit about um, the next chapter, which was all about my decision to join the police and, and what kind of led up to that. So I was a student at uh, University in Birmingham at the time. Um, as I told you before, my brother joined the police, uh, much to my kind of horror initially, um, albeit I had to kind of uh, have a word with myself and, and realise I was uh, falling into that trap that so many people fall into, particularly when they're young and idealistic, that they think the police are all a bunch of fascist bully boys, and actually they're not. Um, so I kind of uh, had that sort of eureka moment, realising that all of my prejudices about policing were wrong, and um, and on that basis, I decided to join. But before I joined the, I sort of a, you know applied to join the police. My intention was to join the army, actually, as an army officer. Um, I'd also always been, you know, into physical fitness, um, traveling. Uh, the idea of doing a desk job was just like complete anathema to me. Um, and uh, yeah, so I, I applied to join the army, actually, and went through, you know, jumped through a few hoops that everybody has to, to go through. Um, and my sort of I was either in, my interest at that time was either to join the Irish Guards as an officer or the Parachute Regiment. That was sort of, you know, the two that I decided I might be interested in. So with that in mind, um, having gone through those hoops, I got called for an interview 
in Birmingham City Centre at the Army Careers Office. And um, I got all suited and booted, and um, which, you know, in those days, oh my goodness, you know, most of us, you know, we lazed around in uh, T-shirts uh, and jeans and all that. But I obviously had to get myself a nice suit and get all smartly dressed up. So I went along to the Army Careers Office for my interview with this Lieutenant Colonel, I believe. And uh, I arrived at the allotted time. So my interview was meant to be at nine o'clock in the morning. So I walked in there. It was in New Street. I, I believe there is still an Army Careers Office in New Street. Um, well, certainly one uh, very close to that, I'm sure. I've walked past it many times. And I always kind of um, chuckle to myself whenever I see it. Um, so I wandered in there at about five to nine um, and introduced myself to this these two sergeants who were on duty in uniform, um, big sort of thick-set guys, and uh, introduced myself, uh, told them that I'd come from my interview with uh, Lieutenant Colonel so-and-so. And... Um, and the, the, the first one, who was a big, big guy, probably in his, I don't know, early 30s, maybe, um, he said to me, oh, he's not here yet. Um, you need to go away. Uh, get yourself a cup of coffee. He doesn't normally turn up here until about 10 o'clock. So go off and get yourself a newspaper, have a cup of coffee, come back about 10 o'clock uh, for your interview. And I was like, oh, all right then. And uh, so off I went, thinking, oh, that's a bit odd. Um, so went off to this really, um, really shitty uh, shopping centre which uh, used to, has been knocked down thank god, it used to be called the Palisades anyone who is familiar with Birmingham in the 1980s and 90s um, will be familiar with what a dump the Palisades uh, were it was right above uh, the railway station at New Street um, smell of diesel fumes from the trains uh, just added to the general sense of um, run down urban decay and um it was just depressing the shops were all depressing they're all just crap you know um sorry apologies to anybody who used to have a shop in the palisades but you know they were um it's all been knocked down now and replaced by the new swanky um grand central which i don't know if you've seen grand central recently but it's pretty impressive i've got to say so anyway sorry i digress so i went for my coffee sat there with my newspaper um killing a bit of time and uh, then wandered back to the office at about uh, 10, 5, 10 to 10, 5 to 10, you know, plenty of time. So I walked in the front door, uh, sort of nodded and smiled at the sergeant, who looked at me as if I had been beamed in, um, like in a Star Trek episode or something. Um, and I said, oh, Ian Donnelly, I've come from an interview. Um, you told me to go away, blah, blah, blah. And he looked at me completely blankly. And he just said, sorry, mate. I don't know what you're talking about. And I said, I was like, uh, it's Ian Donnelly. I've come from an interview with Lieutenant Council. So he told me uh, he wasn't there yet and told me to come back in an hour's time. And the sergeant called through to the office at the back to the other sergeant and said, um, yeah, can you come through? Did you, do, you, do you know anything about this? And um, the other sergeant came through and said, Simon, um, I don't know what you're talking about. Um, who are you? And, and by this time, by this time my, my, my head was kind of whirling, you know. I was thinking, what the bloody hell's going on here? Um, so anyway, the, the big ginger-haired one said to me, anyway, is your name Ian Donnelly? And I was like, uh, yeah, because uh, I told you it was. And he goes, you should have been here at nine o'clock this morning for your interview. The colonel's been upstairs. He's been waiting for you and he's not very happy. And I was like, whoa, 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 whoa hold on. You, I was here at nine o'clock this morning and you told me to go away and get a cup of coffee. So I'm I'm sorry I'm really I'm really confused what's going on here. He said, "Get up those stairs right now if you're interview. You're you're you're, ne you're nearly an hour late." So my by this stage my mind was absolutely in a complete spiral. I had no idea what the hell was going on. So I kind of uh, went up the stairs, kind of two at a time, knocked on the door, went in, and there's this very kind of pissed off looking senior officer uh, with lots of kind of um, spaghetti on his shoulders and you know, lots of metal ribbons and everything, uh, sat behind a desk, kind of glaring at me. So I introduced myself, um, and uh, he said, take a seat. I said, listen, um, can I just, before we start the interview, can I just explain something? And he said, yeah, what is it? I said, I was here for my interview about five to nine, and um, 
one of your sergeants told me that you weren't here yet and, and to go and get a cup of coffee and come back at 10 o'clock. So he said, so you were here like earlier on this morning? I was like, yes, I was, but I was told to go away. And he said, are you sure? I said, yes, yes, I am absolutely sure. So he says, well, I've, I don't know what to make of that. So he picks up the phone, rings downstairs, and he goes, Sergeant so-and-so, can you come upstairs, please? And by this stage, my mouth was dry, my heart was beating. I was thinking, oh, God, this is like a bloody nightmare. So anyway, I could hear the thumping of big boots coming up the stairs. And this sergeant came into the um, office, stood at, saluted, and stepped forward. He says, um, Mr. Donnelly, so the senior officer, Mr. Donnelly, can you just explain and repeat um, what you told me there? So I repeated it in the presence of the sergeant. And the, the colonel said, is this true? And uh, the sergeant said, sir, this man walked into the office downstairs at five to ten. Uh, I've never seen him in my life before and I've no idea what he's talking about. So the colonel, the colonel said, well, well, I, just, I don't know what to make of this. And he turned around to, to me and said, Mr. Donnelly, are you, are you saying that one of my most experienced sergeants is a liar? And I looked at him right in the eye and I said, yes, I am. He said, well, I'll, I'll have to look into this. And the sergeant said, sir, I, this man, I, I, don't know what he's, I don't know what he's talking about. He's, he's clearly making this all up because he was late for his interview. So he said, uh, right, sergeant, go downstairs and I'll speak to you about this later on. So off he went. I said, right, let's get on with the interview then. So we sat down. I sat down. Um, and by this stage, I was, oh, my God, I was so angry. I was, like, off the scale angry. Um, I was, my, my face was red. And my heart was thumping. I just felt so unbelievably confused and pissed off. So he started the interview, asked me a couple of questions, and then just suddenly, on the spur of the moment, I just thought, I just can't do this. I don't want to join. If this, if this is what I can expect from a life in the, the British Army, then you can forget it. I'm not interested. So I just like turned on my heel and walked out. So I kind of went down the stairs and, I, and the two sergeants were stood at the counter grinning at me like a pair of idiots. And I said, you pair of bastards. And uh, they were laughing their heads off. And one of them said, what did you call me? And I was like, my bearing in mind, I was 20, 21 years old, 21, 22 years old. I was about um, 11 stone dripping wet. And these two sergeants were about 32 years old, about 15 stone of solid muscle. And he said to me, what did you call me? You're an utter bastard. That's what you are. And he literally vaulted over the counter and went off after me, and I scarpered out the front door, running up New Street, chased by this uniformed sergeant, and I was wearing a suit and slippy shoes, slippy leather-soled shoes, and I was a bit of a racing snake in those days, so I easily kind of got away from him, um, and he, then he stood um, laughing, I could see laughing, and I turned around and kind of gave him the middle finger from, from about 100 yards away. So yeah, that was my um, shortest, I always say that was uh, the shortest military career in the history of the British Army. It never even got off the starting blocks. So I, um, I, I gradually kind of, I licked my wounds. I was really pissed off about that, but I licked my wounds and thought, right, reset, uh, what I'm gonna do. So I applied to do a familiarization course with the Met Police um, over a sort of a two or three day period. So in those days, you could apply to the police in one of two ways. You could either apply as a sort of a new recruit um, and just go in in the normal way, or you could go in onto the graduate entry scheme, which was for um, graduates, obviously. And um, that sort of guaranteed you sort of fast-track uh, promotion up to, I believe, inspector or chief inspector within something like, I don't know, seven years, eight years, something like that. Um, uh, so I went on this familiarisation course which was uh, basically persuaded me that yes I definitely wanted to be in the police but I definitely didn't want to go in under the graduate entry scheme because pretty much everyone I spoke to said um, 
you know, there's lots of good people on that scheme, but an awful lot of them won't be police officers um, as long as they've got a hole in their arse. So personally, I decided it would be better to go in at the, in the normal way and, and I would sort of, if, if I enjoyed it then and I was any good, I would, you know, take promotion in my own good time. So there you go. Uh, listen, this episode is quite long enough, I think. So um, leave it with you. Really looking forward to seeing how the uh, conversations with the book publisher progress. And I'll uh, see you next week. Bye. <laughs>